Let's go ahead and get into this. You will want to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 2. It's where we are going through right now in our midweek study, but I'm now making it a component part of our Sunday teaching. So what you don't get necessarily on Thursday, you'll get on Sunday and vice versa. If you miss Sunday, you get a piece of it or at least a forward advance on the next concept teaching through the life of David's second Samuel. We'll continue to do that. Okay. I'd like to anchor us, first of all, in the principle which these pictures are speaking about. So I'm going to direct as you hold your spot in second Samuel market chapter two. Go with me, please, to the book of James, right after Hebrews, towards the end of your Bible. This is the principle that I want you to be able to refer to, pray through, um, because this is essential right now in David's um, turn of events. He is a king in waiting, and I believe that was the title of last what or Thursday's teaching, a king in the wings, I think is what it was. We are bright and waiting for the king who's in the wings. So maybe that will help you kind of sort things out. In verse two of chapter one, my brother count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Let me stop there. It's falling into various trials. It is not falling from various trials. There's a great falling out that right now is happening in Israel between the men that David is leading who are becoming now what is known as the tribe of Judah. And basically that will be the establishment of David's reign right now, about seven and a half years in Hebron which God has told him to go to. And we'll take a look back there in which David made a wise decision to consult the Lord. What do I do now? Saul has died. My good beloved brother Jonathan has died. His two brothers, my friends, they have died. And the nation is now in a crisis. How do we bring this together and still deal with the Philistines and what they've done. So that's taken from last week. And the important part of this is that as a result of this civil war, this faction between Israel proper and now Judah, which David is presiding over, they're fighting one another. And it's not the will of God that that happen. And it is not the will of God that we fight either divisively, politically. We are not to be fighting spiritually. This all has remedy if we pay attention to the things that God has already told us about. So I love the book of James. It's one that easily is teachable. It's practical. It's in your face. You've heard of all of these things before because you're students of the word. And the things that I'm teaching actually are not new. There are many men, hundreds of years before me who have taught it, will after me. But the truth is how it's presented and perhaps an insight that may be a little bit more unique. But I felt that this was important to say. 
all joy when you fall into various trials, but not falling from various trials. That means literally leading to your death, your spiritual demise, maybe even your physical termination. Wisdom is important. So you recognize the trial, even though it is hard. And this has been a hard trial, by the way, for all of us. A real sweater, not the kind you wear, but the kind that that beads up on your forehead that you have to then pat off. Or in my case, you just squeegee it off. But there's an important part of understanding principles right now. And that relates to the wisdom that we need to move through these trials which we are to anticipate. We never do, though, do we? Or if we do, it's always on the smaller side of what could be the worst that could happen, right? Lawnmower doesn't start up, oh, this is a trial. Car doesn't start up, oh my goodness, what do I do? You know, all of this pretty much can be settled very quickly, practically. Gas in the lawnmower, gas in the car, battery for the car. There are a variety of ways in which we can solve it. This has not been so easy to solve. And the solutions that have been presented, not necessarily, in my opinion, the best. And I do mean that. I can be challenged, but then I challenge those who challenge me. <laughs> I think that we lacked wisdom in a variety of ways. And I think as a result, many of the consequences that we experience presently relate to not asking God, what would you have us do? But this isn't all about that. It really is on the premise of understanding what did David learn? What can we learn from his experiences of now taking over literally as a king? And he knows he is, but yet being delayed until the time comes. The patience that he has to exercise. And at the same time being, I'm confident, highly perturbed in the behavior of some. And that can happen too. You might be in this time of being cloistered together, just easily perturbed at people on the slightly grumpy side. And maybe the Lord is saying, that isn't what I want in you. You're dividing, unfortunately, in that disposition, who you are in spirit to who you are in personality. I don't want division there. You're uniquely personable as a spiritual being. So I want you to take this test and trial differently. I want you to be somebody who engaged in an authentic battle doesn't take out those who are on your side. So right now, God's on our side. God's desire is that the church remains strong and potent and not a victim of the enemy. That's Satan, just to distinguish that. It's not your brother or sister or the church down the block. Not even necessarily the government. However, I will say this. Decisions being made by the government certainly pose themselves beyond politics and almost has the strategy of the enemy behind it. And I can understand that. You can too. We've talked about it before. But when a nation whose God is God decides that God can be diminished just a little bit more in this area, just a little bit more in that area, we become godless. 
and we do things that are no longer God-fearing. So the principle right now in James is really very practical. Don't fall from the trial that we're in. Okay? Don't be one who becomes a victim of the enemy by foolishness in not being wise to his wily ways. When you fall into various trials, but don't fall from them, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Right now, David's going to spend seven and a half years patiently waiting upon the Lord to put him into position that he has always believed is for him. We've never seen any evidence in David's life thus far that he was striving for position. It was simply given to him. So many of the things that right now God is doing in our life is developing in us patience and trust and confidence, and we must say timing is everything. Timing is everything in a track meet. We know when the hand goes up, that gun's going to fire. But even though the hand did go up, you violate the audio, meaning that gun sounding. Everybody gets called back. It has to be both with the signal of the hand and the auditory distinct sound of the gun firing in which you can launch from those blocks and run as hard as you have been training. So by the way, are you training? Am I training? To me, the hands up. God has made very evident to us in the scriptures, this race we are in has a finish line. We're to make it. And I personally believe that we wait for that sound ultimately and we give it everything we've got. We're beyond warm-ups now. We're beyond the stretching exercise. It is time to prepare to hit the tape as a team. And so James right now is saying this is about testing that produces ultimately a patience. And it is your faith that things that you cannot see, but that God has given to you as evidence that he's behind everything. And he's ahead of everything. And historically, he as well presented himself sufficiently that in looking back over time, his faithfulness shines as the reason your hope is renewed. That's one of my favorite lyrical passages from a song that Christie wrote. It just is so authentically doctrine. Looking back over time, his faithfulness shines as my reason that my hope is renewed. And so maybe for you, that's an encouragement of you right now. So where is this going? Well, let me just go a little bit further because it says this. In this patience that God is giving to you, it's to have a perfect work. Right? So we're imperfect. So what does God want to do? He wants to have a perfect work through what it is that patience is requiring of us. And it says quite plainly <laughs> that we may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We lack everything, it seems. I mean, on, that's where we're at right now on the fear scale. 
What if I can't buy this? In fact, I have nothing now to buy anything with. We all have that in what might be right now the fear factor, greater than God has ever intended it to be. Remember that in the episodes of the Bible, great men of faith with their spouses and families discovered God's faithfulness, not in the times of plenty, but actually in the famines that motivated to trust God even deeper and more. And when they came out of those famines, guess what was proven? God was faithful. Same thing. There are things, though, that right now we can do in which the consequences of the famine are highly limited. If we do what? It says simply this. Wisdom. If you lack, we do. We lack it all the way to the top of the food chain, presently to where even some of us are right now. But boy, do we need to pray for wisdom on those who are in authority over us. Simply this. If you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously, liberally, without reproach, and it will be given to him. But what's happening right now in the cycle of erring is nobody's asking God. They're just asking professionals. There isn't a better professional than the one who we profess faith in or ought to than God. He gives the answer. We need to seek counsel from God's word. We need to ask of his spirit for an enablement, for discernment. It's all about going to the source of everything that right now we lack. Because we can behave very foolishly, as even in this chapter going back to Second Samuel will show men behaving foolishly in what they ought to have known predictably. Because God established truth in them, even in the industry of being soldiers. I take it to this principle, and I also conclude right now to get us back into our study, which is central right now. And that would simply be that God in an actual real-life situation and establishing a person wants to be king. There's already a kingdom now that's been established. It's called a monarchy. But God says, really, essentially, I can help you out in that. I let you move into it. And that's what you've chosen to do as a nation. But I can help you along in that. Well, we're a republic and a democracy. I can help you out in that. I establish governments. I can really make everything that I have allowed you to do in governance for the purpose of guaranteeing the pursuit of happiness. If it's found in me and you desire to be governed by me, there will be fruit abounding if you come to me. Well, we got to check the doctors. Do you realize that I'm also called the great physician? Well, we got to check with the counselors and the and the psychologist. Do you realize that I am the wise one? I am the wonderful counselor. Well, we got to check with some of our military leaders. Do you realize that I am the captain of the Lord's host of heaven? Nations bow before me. Armies are vanquished at my word. So whatever it may be that right now seems to be the answer, if it is not God, then it's 
foolishness and its stupidity, and there is a consequence. So picking up with this, but also as well entertaining you, I was trying to think, is there an illustration, Lord, that I can give to kind of just, you know, even perk up my ears a little bit on this? So I'm going to try something. A little dramatic, but there's an intended purpose for it. So bear with me. Hang in there. I'll do my best to dramatically present it and see if it conveys where we're going right now. When generals become kings. A general is interrupted in a war room conference by a captain. So what do you think, general? The captain asks. Sounds good to me, the general responds. I didn't say anything, sir, the captain responded. Good idea, captain. Anything will do. You can do the replay. <laughs> there was a question asked. There was no answer given. And then the trite response from the general was, anything will do. And that's kind of where we're at today. When generals become kings and the king of kings becomes a private, we have a bad war room conference and nothing ultimately gets satisfied no matter how much you've got on the table, no matter how many brilliant men and women you've got gathered around the table. When God is removed from his position as king, because a general thinks he can, and this is illustrative, it just does not do well. So consider that as something that all of us need to ask ourselves. Am I behaving like a captain, like a lieutenant? first or second? Am I behaving like a private? Am I behaving like a lieutenant colonel, a major? Am I behaving like a lower general? Or have I now subordinated what God wants to have as his sovereignty over me and where the battle belongs to him but I'm drafting the plans? Is there a problem with that? So here's where we talked last week on the problem with this. Saul has perished in battle with his sons. Abner, who was the general beside Saul, who has come away from the battle alive with those remaining of his army, are now, right now, in a political turmoil. The king is dead. What do they do? So we look back at about verse 8 is where we were at. And Saul, commander of Saul's army, excuse me, Abner, commander of Saul's army, this is verse 8, verse eight took uh, Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. 
So what you need to understand about that is Mahanium was basically a city of refuge that the Levites had established. It was a place that you could go and it was kind of like safe haven. Nobody can touch you there. There was an ordinance. Even though others may have known who was there and they may have indeed been enemies or perceived murderers or those who needed a judicial spanking if they were in the city of refuge, they could not be touched until their case could be heard. It's interesting because obviously he's the son's king. It would appear that there are four sons. He's the last of them. He's a 40-year-old. So actually, he's not a little guy. He's a very mature man. But he wasn't at the battle scene, which means he was left back, obviously, to take on if his father didn't make it out. And this is, in fact, what happened. So as we talked about last week, one who simply has known military all his life Abner secures him in a place in which he can determine how to usher him in or coronate him. That means to put the crown of his father's position upon his head. The dilemma is, is that crown was what? Delivered to David by an Amalekite, right? That crown that should have been transferred over to his son is now in David's possession. David fully understands that what is happening right now is God is ratifying at the termination of Saul's life his appointment to be king. And he certainly could have put it on and he certainly could have marched in to Gibeah and have announced himself as the king of Israel, all Israel. But what we do know of from last week's teaching is that in the inquiry, David simply asked God, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? Of the cities that are now in my zone, the areas that I've lived in, do you want me to go to this city, that city, such a city? No city? And he said, go to Hebron. You go to Hebron. And that's where I will continue doing a work in your life. It may not have made sense to David, but what we do know is that David's senses were heightened to the voice of God. He could have argued, but he didn't, because deep inside him he had learned in these 10 years of battle-weary running, which is what he did. He was fleeing from Saul that he might not kill Saul. Not that he would ever have wanted to, but that in a skirmish, Saul would be vulnerable to men who were passionate about David and frustrated against Saul. David was ultimately protecting the monarchy that was still in Saul's hands until God had made a decisive decision with regard to Saul. And this is the excellency of David. He camps himself back years when, as a 15-year-old, he had heard the voice of God as a young shepherd boy. He was able to say all of the things that God, by literally his empowerment of David in protecting his father's sheep, were exploits of great power, taking on bears that could have lacerated him with one swat, grabbing lions by the beard and 
choking them, <laughs> pulling lambs from their teeth. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine a 15 or 16 year old boy with that kind of tenacity and strength. But what it shows you is what God will do with a 15 or 16 year old young boy, young woman, whose heart is to engage protecting the least and being sold out to God in what it is you're doing. In this case, it was guarding the flock and that's what he did. So in this episode right now, there's civil war that's happening because Abner himself should have known better. Why? He was there at the very beginning of basically David's inauguration. When evidence is evident, how is it irrelevant? You can go back and pin that phrase. You'll hear some catchphrases today that are intended to actually make you think. But go back with me, please, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we're going to find the evidence that was evident and that by no means is irrelevant. Can you go back that many years to with certainty say, this is the evidence that I know of God in my life, purposed for my life. And though it might be refuted, though others could deny it, even myself doubting it, it's not irrelevant. How do you make something that was truly of God that you received from God relevant? You believe in it once again. You believe in it. You believe in it even when others are laughing at you because of it. You believe in it. As one commentator, and I think it was Vernon... J. Vernon McGee said it. You, J. Vernon McGee said it. You take the promises of God, you grasp it in your fist, and you go to the grave with it. That's belief. That's belief. God looks at that as harmonious in the expression of faith, and he said, that's awesome. I do big things. When your belief is knitted with your faith, it pleases me, and I move mountains. I change circumstances. And this isn't demanding it from God because what we again look at is the patience of David in what he knew and believed in his heart. He was very careful about not violating the rungs of progress. The careful, methodical footsteps and hand grips that we make to move according to God's will, to the top in which leadership has been refined, the stuff in us that would have been a contradiction to God's purposes are refined, and the things that are highly spiritual, highly motivational, believable, are those things which God reveals. We all have a season. There's a season in which that will no longer be my season. Could be today. Could be till I'm 80. I think time's far less than that. But the question is, what am I doing with the time that God has given to me? And though others indeed are doing it with great excellence, 
that I actually would enjoy being able to sit under. I, it's not an excuse right now that I am to dismiss myself from the battle. David in this evidence, as we move back here, is found in verse 12. Notice this. So he sent and brought him. Notice this. We're talking about ultimately when Abner would have been aware of this. This is when David's being called by Samuel, by his father. He appears ruddy with bright eyes, good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is the one. The one for what? The one to be king. There it goes. It's anchored right there in David's historical past and technically all of Israel. Though this would not have been a large feast, it was a feast. Samuel was the presiding prophet over it. There could not have been any question by his brothers or anybody about what this meant. They were steeped that much in this ceremony. And though they might have scratched their heads, maybe even shaken it, rubbed their chins, there would have been no doubt about the implication of an anointing on this young boy. And now where we find him as a 30-year-old man, it never diminished. The anointing was there. And that's important because sometimes, oh, so long ago, it's not there anymore. Yes, it is. God was as sincere with it back then as he is presently now. He never forgot the things that he told me even though he allowed me to get quite older before I experienced it. I mean, if it were my way, I would have done things a little bit differently than God allowed to happen. Because I would have thought I was certainly ready for this in my 20s. And God said, not really. There were th There's some things that I just needed to deal with in your life. Thought way too much about your hair. That's not an issue anymore thought way too much about your stature. That's not there anymore. There's so many things, Rich, that are not there anymore except the heart that I gave you. Your boasting points are in me because you can look in the mirror and see that I've removed most of the things that were your challenges. So David, even right now, inarguably a warrior that would not have been any less than Joab or Abner, is one who now in 10 years of being worked over and worked on has developed spiritually in a, in a way much larger than these guys. And so this brings you back to the point of reference for him and the historicity of his faith. He was called, didn't demand to go where the brothers were, certainly could have been aware, hey, something's happening in the cities. What's going on there? Well, I'm going to just leave the sheep and figure it out. He waited till he was called. That's a key. You wait until you're called. But who are you waiting? You're waiting upon the Lord. What are you doing? The things that God has put before you to do. And you wait for the call. And that changes everything. Because God changes everything to that satisfaction. So verse 18 then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech and handsome person, and the Lord is with him. There you go. 
Now, he may not have heard these things, but what you do need to know is that Saul was having problems in his mind and in his heart. He was disturbed greatly. And the solution for it was to bring somebody who could sing and quench his nightmares. And whose reputation was heard? It was David. Why? He had always been doing what he was doing. He was singing to the sheep. He was singing during the chores around the home. He was singing when he took his walks in Bethlehem. He was singing when he made his pilgrimages. When the feasts were conducted, when sacrifices were given, he was just singing and playing, worshiping, poetry flowing. He was identified by that which he was doing consistently. And as a result of that, he was brought to the attention of ultimately whom? Saul. In verse 15 of chapter 17, I'm just moving right over there. David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. This is what you need to know. Because of his name being mentioned, he was employed immediately. But in his employment of playing guitar or harp for Saul, he would go back periodically to his house to help his father out. He was multitasking. Well, I got to be here because that's what I'm called to do. I need to go there because that's what I'm called to do. I'm going to do both things that I'm called to do because I'm called to do it. God's enabling me to do it. But this is what you need to know. He was there under Saul's auspices. Guess who else was there with Saul? Abner. Abner would have seen this young guy at 15 and 16 years of age. Beautifully moving in the spirit, having an effect on Saul that Abner would have never seen. And if there's somebody that wants to see an effect on a king, it's a general who's getting yelled at or threatened in his position. Man, would somebody get this guy off my back? And David comes in to sing with his lips. And all of a sudden there's peace and the presence of the Lord. When generals become kings, when evidence is evident, how is it irrelevant? Abner, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? We know that Saul had established his son, obviously, to take the lineage, but you needed to come to him, Ishbosheth, and say, It is not for you, my son. Before you were aware of this, your father and I were aware that there was a change being made. And I fought hard with your father to make it happen. And as a result, we've lost your elder brothers. It's sad what's happened, but we cannot continue in this. And so David, from the day that I laid eyes on him, heard of him subduing the evil spirit that was over your father. He was marvelous, effectual. It was inarguable. Jonathan himself, who was heir prince before you, loved him with his soul, surrendered his cape. I saw that from the, from the outer portico, the sword and the cape. He literally was giving David the throne. I saw it and I knew it. And we fought to keep this dynasty. 
And as a result, in battle, separated from your father, from your three brothers, they're dead. And this has got to stop because it is not doing the kingdom of God any good. Ishbosheth, I give you refuge in this place, but I'm going back to David and I'm uniting this country. As Jonathan did, I'm going to lay down my sword and my armor and my javelin and I'm going to pledge allegiance to my king. whom I saw when he was 15 or 16 years of age. Oh, by the way, Ishbosheth, I'm the one that on the battlefield brought him before your father. When the inquiry was, who is this young man? Isn't it interesting? Saul literally had him as a singer, personal singer. And then when David in the next chapter becomes the giant killer, and literally guaranteed victory of all of Israel, Saul goes, who is this guy? I'll go get him. <laughs> How could you forget somebody like that? I'm more probably responsive to remembering a guitar player and a singer than I am a warrior, but I have both of those on both sides of me. Love the warriors. Love the worship leaders. I think there's a compliment with both of them, but you don't forget either of them, because God says, that's what I am. I am into worship. I lead the hearts of men for worship, and I am a warrior. And I compliment what I do and the victories that I give by that, by my virtue. So again, coming back to that point, what do we say? When generals refuse to consult the king of kings, the king of kings, then simply generalities become the battle strategy. Generalities. I intentionally made a play on that because God's not interested in generalities from generals, people in position of authority. He wants specifics. I very often have been criticized for being slow in decisiveness. But what I tell people is, it's not that I'm slow. I'm patient and waiting out for God's orders on what it is I'm to do. If I do not hear from him, then I remain steadfast in the order that I last received. It can come across as indecisive. We can be criticized. And I'm not saying that decisions couldn't be made faster. But I really do believe that our errors are in going too fast as opposed to waiting miserably for the when. Lord, when? Well, David, I'm not going to tell you that right now, but I am going to tell you where you to go. You go to Hebron. I go to Hebron. I go to Hebron. And that's what he did. That's really all we know right now and where we've come from in our chapter study. But now what's happening is the civil war is breaking out. And because of the generality right now from two generals, Abner and Joab, and by the way, Joab is indictable here as well. He had been following David 
all of his mature life. It's hard to say in the age where both of these guys are, but I'm more inclined right now that Abner, who was the cousin of Saul, is probably at the age of his oldest son, Jonathan, probably a 57 or 58-year-old. That's my thoughts, deductively. I think he was junior to Saul as a cousin, but I think that he was about equivalent to Jonathan, 17 years junior to Saul. So he's an older guy. It's hard to say where Joab is, but Joab is the nephew of David, and he basically is the son of one of David's two sisters. And that can be researched in First Chronicles. But it would seem right now that as we turn the pages in history and we realize that Joab lived actually to the end of David's life, which was 70, he was probably on the other side as well. Maybe closer, perhaps, you know, to to a son of David. Don't know. But because we know that he outlived David and that Solomon ultimately would be a, an adjudicator of his death because of things that he had done that were wrong, we've got two guys right now that what I'm trying to say importantly as generals are really in conflict with what their office ought to have been and ultimately whom they were serving. Because there's a battle that we looked at last week. And the battle, from its very beginnings, looks very foolish. What was the battle that was going on in this civil war? They meet, it says, and we looked at this. They meet at this pool. It's the pool of Gibeon. It was a cistern. Don't know how it looked. Don't know if it was a natural cistern. My thoughts are is it probably was a pooling by large rocks, a gathering of water from a fresh spring. But this is where they meet. They're on either sides of it. Abner is the one that initiates this. Joab consents to it. Here's what happens, though. What we don't see is David having a word on this. And so here's my point as well. When there are generals making decisions, but you have no evidence that the king did, you're going to have a problem. That's the point that I'm making. David, right now, who does literally, from God's perspective, have the crown on his head, even though he's not been coronated officially by the united nation of Israel, he has the crown. But guess what? We don't see him. Jesus has the crown and the world says, we don't see him. So we're going to handle this by the strategy of generals. We're going to make generalities our battle strategy. It's going to work. And so Jesus is there and he's going, uh, nah, nope, not going to work. But I'll be here where I have been and you will call upon me and I will listen. And by the way, I will give you wisdom so that you don't have to err as generals making battle strategies out of generalities. On any decision, whatever it is, it's huge if the outcome is failure when God says, I just wanted to show you faithfulness. I wanted to show you fruitfulness. But you just had to make a decision without me. 
And so this is what you get in that battle sequence of being on either side of this reservoir. They meet in the middle. And I, I don't, I don't know if literally they they hop in the pool, and it probably suggests that twelve guys on one side that are admirals, twelve guys on the other side that are Joabs. They're 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 probably the finest. They're probably the best of the best. They probably look like a football team. And they meet in the middle, they grab each other's heads, and with their swords, they plunge it in seemingly simultaneously into the sides of one another, and they die in the bath of Gibeah. I, you might say that this is one of the first bloodbaths, unnecessarily. A civil war in which brothers are killing one another because they have not met in terms of peace. They have not sought the will and heart of the king. Even Abner could have been petitioned to come over and counsel with David. That's all Joab would have had to say. Abner, you and I have been dogging each other for 10 years. Let's give it a rest. Let's quit this nonsense. Let's stop this offense. Aren't you tired? I'm tired. Aren't you tired? I'm tired. Sick and tired. Let's let's just change how it is we're doing stuff. But they come up with this plan that literally is the first time, in my opinion, in recorded biblical history, that such a chan that such a plan would even be initiated. It's not even it's not even something fundamental that makes sense. It's almost pagan to me. Okay, bench, whistle blows, go to the center. Grab your opponent's head and then run each other through with a sword. Whoo! Victory! No, it's not. It was injury and it was death. And what did that lead to? It led then to a full on assault. Then they broke up into a greater work of enmity towards one another when all they had to do was consult David. We know that you consult the Lord faithfully. We know that God hears you truly. We're wrestling in our hearts right now of wanting to give you everything. And we will die to see that that happens. But we're really not sure if that's what God wants us to do. There's already death from Gilboa. Men, even foreigners from us, had greater courage than we did. They buried they buried the bodies of Saul and his sons. But David, if we don't consult you, we're just going to do something stupid. And Abner, I believe personally, would have been a man of reason, even though in some commentaries he is considered conspiratorial or hanging on. That may have been true. But I'm confident in this, that David would have had the ability, had he been called on, to say, Abner, it's David. You know me. Twice I spared you. On occasions you were humiliated. That was only because I spared the life of your king and my king. But Abner, you know that in all these years I've been reasonable. I did not harm you when I had opportunity to. I have been only faithful to God. 
your God, my God. You know me. You remember me singing in the palace. You remember me. You brought me before Saul. I haven't changed. Abner, have you? Have you changed? I know you're ticked at Joab. Joab's got some attitude. I see that in him. But can't we get together and have a conversation that leads to unification instead of division and more bloodshed that the people who are our true enemies can exalt going, what do we have to worry about? They're doing a good job killing themselves. And that's what the world looks at right now. He looks at how the church is killing themselves over issues that ought not be divisive. And so the question is, are we looking at issues that are divisive according to the word of God? Or are we now making it generalities? And because, oh, we have position in certain cultural areas and we do not want to be offensive, we'll go ahead and just tweak it. We'll go ahead and make that our truth. And the world then doesn't get rightly discernible information about God because generals have played God. They were given authority by God, but there's a difference between given authority by God and playing God. And that's the word of the Lord. We don't operate off of generalities. We operate off of specific truth from the word of God. All scripture is given by God and it's profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Second Timothy 3.16 It's all his word for our awareness and the application of wisdom in the circumstance that there might not be a bloodbath. And that there might be blood given. Whose blood? His blood. Jesus wants to know that he died for this world that's deeply confused, deeply indebted to the enemy, squandering the precious, the precious resources of life. And by the way, that has implication too in these areas which we talked about even on Thursdays of not knowing. Really? That's a baby? Not birth control. That's a baby. That's a baby. How could we be this way? Because we've become arrogant and godless. Well, we proclaim God. So did Saul. But he got God wrong. He got God wrong to the last day of his life. He did find God. But ultimately, his life was required of him. We have, I believe, as well in closing, scared people from caring as opposed to caring for people that are scared. We're to be triumphant in tragedies and testings and trials. That has not been true. I'm not saying this with regard to the church. I believe altogether differently about that. I believe that as a group, 
of people that should be a nation under God, we've got it wrong. And so what has happened is we've squandered the resource of confidence and the opportunity to point to the Lord. And when, again, we see that generals have made decisions, generalities such as non-essential, the church is non-essential, go to your places, go to your corners until this situation is taken care of. That's a crisis in which the cross has been removed. We're doing fine. The Lord's teaching us how to be media giants to face off with what? The giant, the world system. We're doing it. And I believe it will have ultimately an effect that God is going to use for these end times. I would not have entered into this theater of presenting the word of God had a crisis not come into my life and people pushed me towards doing this. So all I'm doing, as many pastors are, is as much as possible teaching the Word of God, laying out principles that can guide and direct us. Even if you do not understand what I'm saying, I guarantee you God says, it's my Word, it's not going to return void. He's doing a good job. You may not understand it. Play it over a couple of times. But I'm giving you a bath. Because the Word is likened as the water of the Word as a spiritual bath for us by the Spirit of God to us. Why? Because when He gives you bath, guess what you don't have to suffer in? An unnecessary bloodbath, as was the case in this story of these two generals meeting. Generals that ought to have known better based on the experience that they had with David, who was a type of the King of Kings, who we now get to say, I'm going to go to the King on this issue. I'm going to get his word. I'm going to just kind of put this little epaulette that says I'm a general. I'm going to just kind of turn it over. This little thing on my collar that says I'm a colonel. I'm going to just turn it over. I'm going to turn over my ranks and give God what he is, the rank of superiority and seniority over the decisions right now that I am making. We're going to pray this word in. The family's going to lead in some worship, and then I'm going to take communion with you following that. Heavenly Father, we present this word ourselves to you. We thank you, Lord. Lord, there was a lot said, and I know that. But I'm praying that what was said was pertinent it was present time help in confusion that some are battling with, wisdom that they lack, that now they can ask for and receive in faith. Just an encouragement, even in their lives, in feeling disappointed, frustrated in the turn of events, but they can go back into their journals. They can relive the promises. They can know with certainty that even in these times, Lord, you have not changed towards them. May we not change towards you except to draw nearer and nearer and nearer until we are, in fact, in your presence in heaven. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.